This morning we're going to be in John chapter 2. And we saw at the end of chapter 1 was the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. He was the forerunner. He broke ground. Uh, He had to prepare the hearts of the people. And we've had this discussion a few times now between not only the leadership but the followers. It was a corrupt system all the way around, and and it was problematic, obviously. It wasn't what God had intended. Uh, Today we're going to look at what appears to be Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine, as well as his first act of discipline and where he turns the tables over of the money changers in the, in the temple. So starting with verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says... To you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants knew, who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. So you have this local wedding, Cana. And Jesus, his mother Mary, the disciples are invited. But the problem is they ran out of wine. Just to help you to understand the cultural differences between our weddings and their weddings is their weddings were several day long. Uh, it was a, a great festival, it was a feast, and it was social suicide if you ran out of anything. Uh, they didn't have 24-hour stores like we have now. So this was, this was really a problem, kind of dampens the mood. Uh, so this was the problem, and Mary adm- advises Jesus of the situation. Now Jesus responds, woman, to his mother. Now, my mom is sitting here in the back, and if I walked up to her this morning and said, woman, um, you know, it's a different vernacular. We have a different way of speaking. So you kind of have to understand that that was a term of respect, although today it's more of a, a, a coarse term. Uh, but Jesus was now an adult and not under his parents' tutelage anymore. The speculation is, as we see the uh, Gospels progress as we see things happen with the family dynamics that Joseph is not there, and the speculation is that he may have died at this time. And he says that it's not his hour. In other words, it's not his prophetic hour. You see, the temporal meant very little to him. And it's hard for us to understand because even in the church today, temporal seems to be everything. Churches are abandoning God's word, and they're going with you know, fad things. They're leaving the pure word of God for other, you know, popular, more uh, cool things. So Jesus was very concerned about spiritual timetables. He was concerned about converting souls, right? But we see things a little bit in the reverse today. But there's a lot we can take out of this. Number one, Jesus attended a wedding. He wasn't a hermit. And I don't understand any antisocial, unfriendly, cliquish Christian groups because the goal is to reach the world. So he did mingle among the people. He did this throughout his whole ministry. 
two, Mary responds to the servants, do whatever he says. She knew that Jesus wasn't just one of her children. We see in the Bible a few times, even from when he was little, that she pondered these things. She thought about them. She meditated on what was going on with this child of hers that was so different. Now, I would say this too, that it's good advice to anyone who calls themselves Christians to do whatever he says. How do we do that today? Well, we look at his teachings. I'm actually going to read an article, part of an article, written by Lauren Green, and it's called The State of the Bible, 2012. It says, the good news about the good book is that it's still the number one seller of all time with an estimated six billion copies sold. I don't know if that includes the ones that are just given out for free. It says, the not so good news, though, according to a new survey by the American Bible Society, is that it's lost a bit of prominence in affecting people's lives. The State of the Bible 2012 looks at the trends surrounding the most influential book of Western culture. The survey found that while 82% of Americans revere the Bible as sacred literature, that number is down slightly from a year ago when 86% thought so. When asked whether the Bible contains everything a person needs to know how to live a meaningful life, 69% agreed, either strongly or somewhat. The number was down also from the previous year, when 75% responded the same way. These are opinions. Maybe some politicians follow public opinion polls, but God does not. You know, we are trying to make God in our image when he's made us in his image. So we, you know, as time goes on, we don't think his word is is very important. That's our problem, not his, and we'll, we'll suffer for that the more we pull away from him. The ABS sees opportunity rather than disappointment in the results. Lamar Vest, president and CEO of American Bible Society, says, we do see that as something to be concerned about, but it's still a very high percentage when you have 82% of Americans agreeing on anything. He's an optimist. (laughs) That's a good point. When do 82% of Americans agree on anything? What does John 14 tell us? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word. To God, when we are obedient to him, that means that we love him. Do we say we love God because it's an emotion? Or do we say it because we love him the way he wants to be loved? More important. Third, some give Mary an unbiblical role today. Even some offer prayers to Mary. Now, where she is right now in glory and seeing the full depth and concept of this one that she carried and grew up and, and died for the sins of the world, including hers, she says this in the Magnificat, she would be very embarrassed to receive anybody's prayers today. Now, the response I heard to this was that a son will always listen to his mother. Well, you haven't been to my house, okay? (laughs) Dad often has to step in. A few things. Number one, Jesus and Mary, the relationship was just while it was on earth. He had to take the form of a man, and starting from birth, someone had to care for his infant body and, and nurture him until he grew up into an adult. The second point is if you have to go through someone's mother to get them to listen to you, then you may not have a good relationship with that person. We may have to reevaluate, reevaluate our relationship if we have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. And today, as you go through the word, you can reevaluate that relationship. Do I really know the Lord? Do I really have a relationship? Do I understand that even when I pray, I kind of know what the answer would be based on what he says in his teachings? Important things to look at. So Jesus' apparent first miracle Maybe he's reluctant to do it, but he does it anyway. Why? 
Well, maybe he had compassion on a poor family. Maybe it was a low-budget wedding because this is all they could afford. They did their best and hoped that the wine would really, you know, go, go far, and apparently it did not. So, you know, and this is amazing. We can take a few things from this. Number one, if you remember in Matthew 15, a Gentile woman came to Jesus and she said, my, my daughter is very sick, she's demon-possessed. And he says to her, you know, it's not good to take the bread for the children and give it to the little dogs. He was sent to the house of Israel, and she said, yes, but even the crumbs that fall from the tables, you know, we'll, I'll take whatever you can give me. And he saw the great faith of this woman, but it's amazing that she pleaded her case to the Lord. And this is what prayer is. We have discussions with him. Now, if you've walked into this church for the first time and you've never really prayed, or you've read, wrote prayers, he gave you the ability to relate to him as he gave you the ability to relate to your loved ones on earth. And actually, the fruitfulness of a relationship that we have with him can be far greater because he's God. So I love that. You know, she's just really making her case. And here, there's, a, there's an issue with this, this family that have run out of wine. And he's, he's showing them an act of mercy. So I would say this. God cares about big things. And I've heard people say this. Well, we're going to two wars, and there's poverty, and there's you know, sick people in the world. And you know, my problems are little. God cares about the little things in your life as much as he cares about murder and genocide and war and all those things. You're not bothering him. <laughs> you know, God can multitask. He can listen to a whole bunch of prayers at the same time, little ones and big ones. So I just want to encourage you this morning that whatever you've walked in here with that you're dealing with, God cares about your problems. If he was concerned about them, you know, having no wine, he's concerned about your small problems as well. Six, I'm going to read this again. It says, Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. I can just picture the servants as, the, as this stuff, this liquid, and they're really hoping to God that when the master of the feast is tasting it, it's not water. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's probably one of those tense moments. I could see Jesus. You know what's really amazing about the servants? The servants back then, they would just do what they were told. And Jesus always ministered to the lowest ones on the social scale. I could just picture him looking at the servants and kind of winking at them and going, watch this. Check this out. You know, this is good wine. So... Um, you know, their whole reputation really hinged on this. Now, obedience is not popular in our society. But obedience, again, like I said, is very popular with the Lord. If you marry obedience and trust, you can never go wrong when it comes to the Lord. To obey him, to, to follow his word, and then to trust him that things are going to go well. You can never go wrong when you marry those two together. In verse 9, again, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the feast has no idea what's going on, what happened, but he just was like, wow, another batch. Well, gee, you guys must have saved this really good stuff for the end. Again, vernacular, ver, the way we speak. When we say good wine, we're not saying, hey, man, this is the hard stuff. 
Um, there's a, I guess some, some will say, gee, I walked into the right church. You know, um, that's not what he's speaking about here. He's not talking about people getting bombed. Um, there was a very different quality of wine back then, and it was much more diluted than the wine we have today. And the truth is that if you add too much alcohol to any drink, it kind of burns. So we got to get that out of our minds. We, we think too much in the temporal. What, was he, what did he mean about good wine? I think when they tasted it, they were just blown away. Because, see, everything that the Lord does, he does perfectly. What things he does in our lives, the way he made us, the gifts he's given us, the spiritual gifts that he wants us to use, everything he does. Look in the mirror. If you're watching television and you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see because you're trying to compare yourself to TV, shut the TV off. Kill that television. Because the truth is that God made you. Start reading the Bible and you'll have a proper self-esteem, a proper understanding of yourself, not what society or your peer group is going to dictate. Whatever God makes, he makes perfect. And when he tasted that wine, they're like, wow, this is, I've never tasted anything like this. I don't know what he did, what chemicals he put in there, but it, everybody loved it. Now, I'll tell you this, that um, a gentleman passed away uh, in, in a few days, a few days ago, and I, I had the good pleasure of knowing him. And he had a lot of toys. You know, he was, a, he was older than me, and he had a lot of neat toys. Everybody liked his toys, big boys' toys. But I've got to tell you, where he is right now, because, uh, you know, I believe, and, and I've talked to him, and... Uh, we, we reaffirmed his faith, and I believe where he's at now, he's not even thinking about the toys he left behind. He's looking around at the kingdom and the angels and God and the throne, and he's like, wow. He's not even thinking about his motorcycle anymore. I can guarantee you that. So whatever God does, he does it to perfection. That's the God that we serve. And sometimes our finite minds have a hard time understanding that when we read the scripture. Now, let's go back to verse 6, and I want to wrap up this first portion of what we're reading. This purification water, these stone pots that contained all this water in it, this was part of the old system. This is where the Jews would, they had this idea, you know, the Bible spoke about washing in the Old Testament, spoke about ceremonial cleansing, but the legalists, they took it to a whole other extreme. They did triple hand washings, and if they washed their hands with water, then the, the water that was on their hands now was dirty, so somebody would have to pour more water over them to clean off the dirty water that initially was poured on. Then they had to do it a third time just for, I guess, good measure. So this was this kind of OCD type of uh, this technique that was going on with the hand washing. I don't know if that's where it came from, but this is the old system, the old wineskins that Jesus speaks about. And Jesus said the old wineskins become brittle in a spiritual sense, and they can't handle the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Because when wine ferments, and you go, you go back and forth between the literal wineskins he's talking about, wine, and then you think about, oh, the Holy Spirit and, and, and the new system and the age of grace containing the Holy Spirit because the old system can't because it's old and dead and it, it looks at temporal things rather than spiritual things. So it's actually, you can go back and forth in your mind with this whole wine analogy. Water could only change things physically, but the legalists believed that it had the power to change things spiritually, but it could not. As the new wine, the age of grace, the Holy Spirit, well, that, when the Holy Spirit expanded, if we are part of that new system and we're born again, then we can receive those things of God. Christ showed that he had power over the elements. He had power over the natural as well as the supernatural. And we'll see that next Sunday in John chapter 3. You see, 
If we try to do things in our own flesh, if we try to do things through a religious system, remember this prayer, read this, do that, that's not going to get us any closer to God. We need to be able to expand with what the Holy Spirit is going to show us and enjoy the ride. Let him take mastery of our lives and follow his lead. That's the way it's supposed to work. So this first half of the message was really an act of grace, which the Lord Jesus imparts on this couple getting married, starting out their life. 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So this is the beginning of his ministry and his signs. 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, emphatically, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up, quoted in Psalm 69. So Passover, one of the feasts or the festivals that every Jewish male was required to make a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. We'll look at verse 14. In the court of the Gentiles, and there's other historical sources that back this up. So you had your basic building, and there was different courts, the courts of the Jews, the court of women, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was kind of, you know, they kind of looked down on the Gentiles. So they figured, out, well, let's put all the, the tables in there. We'll put the animals there. How bad of a witness was that to Gentiles who wanted to believe in the true God? They turned it into a money-making enterprise. So what happened was, if you were coming from a faraway country, maybe you couldn't afford to bring your animals to be sacrificed such a long distance because you'd have to feed them and give them water, and you were concerned about taking care of your own family. Again, it wasn't like we put them on the plane, put them in a little sheep carrier, you know, and we'll fly over to Jerusalem, everything will be fine. These were long, arduous journeys that were taken. And furthermore, the system had become so corrupt that the, uh, the, those that would inspect the animals to be given up at the temple, if they found any blemish, now God said to give your best, but the legalists took it to an extreme. They would look for fault in your animal to reject it and say, well, you have to buy one of our animals, which could cost five to ten times more than your animal cost. And then the money changing. Again, uh, the money changing, you had uh, whatever currency you were giving to donate into the temple, they needed local funds. But again, they charged such heavy rates of exchange that they ripped the people off. So this is what was going on, and Jesus was furious about it. Can you picture our Lord again? We read the Bible with the eyes of Americans and what the media tells us we should believe and we should be like. you got Jesus sitting here making a whip of cords. He's probably, you know, tying the knots, you know, putting the stuff together. Oh, it's just a matter of time. His disciples are going, "Uh uh-oh. Jesus is making a whip. Look out. <laughs> Mama's going to get you. You know what I'm saying? But this is, this is the problem. And do we see it today? Now, you may believe that a prayer handkerchief that you buy on the Internet may work or not work. But if it does really work and it does cause miracles, why would money be attached to it? Any church should not charge for praying for somebody or anointing them with oil or baptizing them. 
These are things that we should just do as churches. I mean, when you see some of the ridiculous things that happen on TV and the internet by these scam artists that call themselves uh, ministries, it's deplorable. So you can take, well, we don't sell uh, animals to take to the temple anymore and we don't change money, but we do see things that happen where money is attached to something of God and that was never supposed to be like that. Again, what a bad witness it was to the Gentiles. And what a bad witness it is today to those who don't know the Lord. There's a lot of accusations against Christians, and sometimes we get angry at the outside world for saying it, but do we own some of that? Does the Christian culture own some of that? Possibly. Verse 15, he overturned the tables. Now, I don't think that Jesus went into ultimate fighting mode and started breaking people's bones and you know, knocking them out, but he had righteous anger. He turned over the tables. He drove out the animals. They don't belong here. This is my father's house. How do we rectify his sinlessness with this apparent anger that he had? Well, if we read Psalm 4.4, which is reiterated in Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry and do not sin. And I think it comes down to the difference between selfish anger and righteous anger. And we must admit, and I probably admit for myself, that when we get angry, why do we get angry? Somebody hurt our feelings. Somebody betrayed our trust. That's selfish anger. Jesus' anger was righteous anger because he knew what God had set up and he knew what man had turned it into. So this was a righteous anger. So you can be angry about something and still not be sinning. Or we can be angry about something and sin. There's a difference, and we can choose which one to take. Now, the Jewish culture at the time, it wasn't about God anymore. We can't stop there. Because we can look at our own Christian culture, let's get closer to home. We can look at our Calvary culture on the East Coast and see problems as well. Is it about God? Or is it about other things? And as we go through the scripture, and I've been making the case now for the last few Sundays that it wasn't just the leadership, it was the followers. Maybe we can be comfortable sitting in the pews and say, well, the leadership should do this and the leadership should do that. But what about the average believer? Don't we all have a responsibility towards God and to be an example, good or bad? I think we do. I have to be quite honest with you. Um, How would Jesus measure up today? with that type of attitude and that type of uh, behavior. He might offend a lot of people today in churches. We all have fragile egos today, don't we? It's really hard to disciple somebody, and I found this too, that you can't raise your voice. You can't say something that wounds the person. Oh, yes, you can. My discipler would shake his finger at me sometimes. I didn't like the way it felt, but a lot of what he said was right. And even when he was wrong about me, when I felt he was completely wrong and he really hurt my feelings and I thought he went overboard, I showed him grace because I know he was trying to work with me. But in America, we're taught to coddle ourselves. We're taught to comfort ourselves. Don't let anybody tell you anything. When it comes to the scripture, if we're not measuring up, measuring up with a scripture, a good discipler will point to the scripture and tell you how you're not measuring up. And that's the truth. So how would Jesus do today in our society? Right? Verse 16. He says, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. 
His actions and words probably went together as he was moving the animals on, as he was turning over the tables. He was probably explaining what he was doing. <laughs> Get rid of these animals. You know, this is, this is a problem. It doesn't belong here. Get rid of that money. Did you ever wonder why nobody tried to stop Jesus? Probably because there was a lot of silent observers who wanted to do the same thing, but were intimidated. I got to tell you, I've been really blessed over the last few weeks that I've had people come into this church that said there were so many problems in the church that I came from. There was, you know, the church gossip and the leadership didn't do anything. There was rifts and there was divisions. You know, I feel comfortable here. I feel safe here because I can see that the leadership deals with things, that we don't brush it under the rug. And I tell you what, when you try to do the right thing, you're going to get abused. And you know who you get abused by mostly? Carnal believers. It's not going to be by the world. It's going to be by other people who call themselves Christians. So this is what's going on here. What is the culture like today? If someone is gossiping, do we, do we have the courage to say put a sock in it? Or do we just ignore it or even partake in it because we're afraid because there's more of them than us? I was really blessed by talking to a woman last night at the, uh, the couple's get-together and she was speaking about a situation where she walked in, professional Christian women, and they were all just talking trash about somebody. And she said, you, you ladies are gossiping. And they stopped and they looked at her. She goes, well, I guess I'm in the wrong place. And she ended up walking away, but she did the right thing. You know, how dare you tell us we're gossiping? Go away so we can continue talking. You know what I'm saying? If someone's causing dissension, do we have the courage to tell them that they're doing something wrong as believers? Do we? Verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus quotes Psalm 69. Now, if you look at Psalm 69, this is a psalm of a passionate saint. This is a psalm of David, and he's very passionate about what he's uh, writing. And this is an individual relationship with him and the Lord. Now, his goal was to live for the Lord. Now, he did some bad things, and we know that in the Scripture, and he was asked for forgiveness, and God did forgive him. But his overriding desire, desire the Bible says, is that he had a heart for God. And it's, so the point I'm trying to make here is that when we look at this, we all have a responsibility. Every individual here has a responsibility. Are you passionate about the Word or the Lord? I am. Do you share that? Do you have a desire to know what God's plan is for your life? Is zeal for your father's house, has it eaten you up? Has it ate Jesus up? Has it ate David up? Do you have that passion? You've got to ask yourself that question. Why are you here in church today? Is it for the right reasons or is it for the wrong reasons? And again, this isn't just about Jesus or David or your pastor. It's about every individual to desire to walk with the Lord. Verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you do to, to, to show us, the, the, the being that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, what he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What sign, what miracle do you do to show us? In other words, how dare you? 
Jesus, this, this has been going on for years. Our priests okayed it. The high priest knows what's going on. The culture is okay with it. It works for everybody. How dare you come and upset the apple cart? I'll tell you the truth. When you declare war on religious hypocrisy, the culture of corruption, establishment Christianity, look out and prepare to be challenged. What are you, a goody two-shoes? Are you better than us? Are you judging me? Everything taken out of context. Jesus declared war on the religious establishment. Now, 2,000 years later, do we have a religious establishment? Sure, you betcha. Are there problems? Listen, pastors lob softballs from the pulpit. You know, maybe they're over-obsessed with talking about the homosexual community. That's an easy one. Can rally the troops that way. You know what? We need to talk about the problems in Calvary Chapel. Do you guys want to talk about the problems in Calvary Chapel? Or is, or is, that, is that too close to home? Or am I, am I getting too close? We need to have the courage to talk about the problems in our own families, in our own communities, in our own churches. Instead of looking outside at the world, maybe there's a reason why they don't want to come to Jesus. Maybe we need to do a better job of cleaning our own house. Maybe zeal needs to eat us up a little bit more. Okay? I'm not afraid to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So... (laughs) The church doesn't need any more bystanders. The church needs active participants. We are the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul says. That means every one of us has a function. If I took my big toe off today, I would have trouble running. I'd probably fall down a bunch of times. The big toe isn't really pretty on my body. I can tell you that right now. I won't show it to you. (laughs) But I need that big toe. It helps me with strength and balance and agility. We all have a purpose here, every one of you. We need to move past feeling, getting down on ourselves and saying, I have a purpose in God's kingdom. What is it, Lord? Show me. You know what? That pastor got me riled up. I want to know what my purpose is. We all have a purpose in the body of Christ, right? The church doesn't need any more bystanders. And at times we need to push back against the hypocritical culture that we're all immersed in. Verse 20. So Jesus, speaking about his own body, says, destroy this body, and I'll raise it up in three days, and of course, or destroy this temple, excuse me. And they thought he was referring to, uh, what did I say? (laughs) Destroy this temple. (laughs) They thought he was referring to the actual building, and if you ever saw a rendition of it, I mean, the thing was massive. It had marble, it had cedars, it had gold. It would be very impressive. I mean, you would just look at it, and it would be like, wow, that's, that's awesome. So he was speaking about his own body, and they didn't understand that. Now, check this out. Speaking about the the body as a temple, in the Old Testament, God said, I'll dwell in the Holy of Holies. I'll be above the mercy seat where the the Holy of Holies is. Uh, My Shekinah glory, a part part of my glory will dwell there. And that was impressive. So not only do you have this incredible building, but God actually, a part of him, physically resided there. I don't know how he does it, but he's God. In the New Testament, you see God the Son residing in a body that Jesus used to walk the earth, to be amongst us. And the third thing we see is after the imparting of the Holy Spirit to all believers, the third part of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, now the Holy Spirit, resides in us believers. 
I think that's awesome. So as I was putting this together, I actually said, wow, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You see how they're all actively working and participating with each other. I just found that interesting. So the second half of this message today is an act of discipline, which really completes the understanding of true love. Why discipline? Because it helps the person who's being disciplined not to destroy themselves. Let's talk about physical. We may do things in our lifestyle that are self-destructive, that are not only that God wouldn't want us to do, but it's, it's hurtful to us. So if you discipline somebody, you say, hey, listen, you keep going on that path and you're going to be dead. Right? And that's not a good thing. We also look at this in a spiritual sense. You know, we, the Bible speaks a lot about turning an erring brother away from their sin right? and saving that soul in a sense to confess our trespasses to each other, to be accountable to each other. So there's a spiritual element as well. Don't go down that path because you may not be able to be pulled out of that. You may be so immersed in that that, you know, you drown in that spiritually. A brother, um, several years ago, was coming to this church, heard plenty of good preaching and teaching in the Bible, and we would have a lot of interesting discussions. And... After some amount of time, I had a discussion with him, and I'm trying to be vague, about possessions and things that would pull him away from, from God. At some point, he left the church. He didn't like what was said, and he eventually got very sick, and he died recently. Um, I was blessed because I was called by the family and said, would you come and pray with him? I came there, didn't mention anything about it. I put my arm around him. We had a lot of good laughs. We read scripture together. I encouraged them. We prayed with the family. Two days later, he went, and he went home to be with the Lord, reaffirmed his faith. This is what discipline is all about, not telling people what they want to hear. I refuse to do that. If you want that, go to a church where you can hide and you can be anonymous, and nobody will ask you any questions. Many have done it. They've left here and gone to a church where they can disappear. See, this is what discipline is. It's love. You're telling somebody, it was done to me. My life was self-destructive. I would have been divorced, dead, or, or a whole bunch of things at the same time. But I had someone who loved me enough to tell me the truth. They disciplined me. And because I was in such a bad way, I listened to them. Although I, get, I would get angry at the things that were said about me, it was the right thing for me. And I will tell you this. Me and the other pastors and wives here have this disease. If you ask us a question, we're going to tell you the truth based on the Scripture. And sometimes I try to say, no, don't say it in my mind. You know it's going, to, it's going to cause you problems, but I can't help it. It comes right out of my mouth. So if you don't want the answer, don't ask me the question or anybody else here. So discipline is very important. This is why we go through the scripture verse by verse, because a lot of churches will whitewash this stuff. They don't want to talk about it. This completes love, grace, and discipline. And we're going to talk about that in the end. So 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That word commit can be translated trust. Jesus didn't trust men. He knew their hearts. And that word no, there's three Greek words that I know of. That one is real intense closeness and familiarity. Jesus knew our, our nature. And I'm going to cover fickleness, wickedness, and the third one is weakness. 
So this has to do with the followers. Fickleness. Men are fickle. Women are fickle. We can see this all through Jesus' ministry. The Bible records, literally, I mean, it's very blunt, that many used Jesus for a miracle, for a free meal. They really weren't interested in what he had to say. Well, he let them come. Men are fickle. I love you one day, I hate you the next. Singing your praises in the ministry of the church one day, I'm Judas the next. Right? People change their feelings as their life circumstances and their idols change. Two, wickedness. Now, this is just a nefarious motive. This is a person who's really a false convert. They're coming. They see an opportunity in a church. Their whole design is to work their way in there to further themselves or to be used by Satan to infiltrate what's going on in the fellowship. It happens. And three, weakness. The person may think that they're not strong enough to stick with it, and they fall away. So what did Jesus do? Basically, it says that he took a lot of these professions with a grain of salt. He didn't commit himself to them. He didn't trust them because he knew their frame. So my question to you this morning, which one are you? Are you one of the three or are you genuine? The Lord is looking for genuine converts and to grow them into maturity. I was taught in ministry, when you criticize, don't take it hard because you don't run the pulpit like a popularity contest. I just read to you the polls. People do the same thing to God. You know, they, they're not really, oh, one day we like your word, the next day we don't. We're busy. We're making money, we're doing well, we're successful. We're not interested, God. So the numbers start to drop. I was taught when I'm praised, don't let it get to your head and don't hold on to it. I can show you scores of emails and, and cards, and I'm a, like a, they say, I'm a brother from another mother. Um, let's see, I'm the best thing since the Apostle Paul. And then when I dare to challenge the personal idols, I become the spawn of Satan overnight. So it's a pretty good trick if you could do it, and apparently I've done it several times in ministry. So I think I'm back to normal again. What, what can we do with this in chapter 2? We can look at Christ's first miracle. It's grace. And we can look at Christ's first act of discipline. Do you think that he loved the guys that he drove out of the court of the Gentiles? Of course he did. You think he hated them? Of course he didn't. He didn't. Scripture was quoted he was hard on them. He, you know, if you're not concerned about anybody, you just ignore them. He constantly went toe-to-toe with the religious establishment and with the followers because he loved them. You guys are doing the wrong thing. Don't you understand? You're false converts. And you, you call yourself leaders, and you're not, even, you're not even spiritual men. It's the blind leading the blind, he said. So you have your active grace and your active discipline, and love embodies both. Discipline without grace is harsh and cold. Some of you might have grown up in a a home when you had really rough parents. Discipline without grace is harsh and cold. But grace without discipline is wantonness. It's a perversion of grace. It shouldn't be tolerated. Wantonness, lasciviousness, no. There needs to be both. See, if our attitude towards God is, well, I just want to get to heaven. Not concerned about our own responsibility and the whole thing. I just want what God has. I want his kingdom, I want everlasting life, and I want everything that the world has to offer. Then you know what that makes us? It makes us users and consumers, not believers. Isaiah 29, 13, God says, and Jesus reiterates, that the people draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's religious hypocrisy. Is that what we want? This is what, this is everything that the Lord fought against, religious hypocrisy. 
Or are we ready to step up to the plate, move beyond the hypocritical culture that we may be in in some facets and give God what he deserves? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.